here with another episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. This is episode four. We have made it now four in a row of this monthly podcast. And with me, as always, he is a trooper. He has been with me every step of the way, is my fabulous co-host, noted wrestling historian, John Boucher. How's it going, John? Oh, how, how's, it, how's it going over there? Happy September. We're back to school. Actually, we never, we're never, we're always in school. We are never on vacation. We're like the uh, opposite of the Beastie Boys in that respect. You know, on location, touring around the nation, charting the territories. And, never and on hopefully, vacation. hopefully, we will pass on some knowledge to our listeners this month. <laughs> um, it, this is episode four, and it is entitled "The Boy from Buffalo." But we're going to focus on September 1972 in the Leroy McGurk slash Bill Watts territory. Um, and uh, I don't think we've mentioned this, but it didn't really have a name. Much like Memphis wasn't, you know, Memphis wrestling. It was, you know, just championship wrestling. And we affectionately refer to it as the Jarrett territory or the Goulas territory. The same goes for this territory, at least until 1979. It really didn't have a name. As a matter of fact, I think the the business entity uh, legally was McGurk Championship Wrestling. Um, but by 1971, when Watts uh, came back to the territory on a full-time basis, he actually at that point bought in uh, significantly into the territory. So we affectionately call it the McGurk slash Watts or hyphen Watts or whatever joinder you want to affix to it. But we're going to talk about September 1972. We're going to look at Leroy's roster at the time and using our exclusive spot ratings, we will see who the main eventers, upper mid-carters and mid-carters are. We'll also look at the convoluted tag team title situation. It's a, it's a little hinky uh, in the summer in fall of 1972. Plus, we're going to talk about a couple of wrestlers that are not typically associated with this territory who are here in September of 72, and that is Tarzan Tyler and Jim Valiant, not Jimmy Valiant. This is before he learned to boogie and before he learned to woogie, uh, <laughs> but Jim Valiant. I uh, also want to note we're recording this uh, about a week before its release date, and we're actually recording it the day after the news broke of the passing of Jerry Brown. And Jerry Brown, not the politician, but the wrestler, was a pretty important part of the McGurk territory. He had a few significant runs, John. He actually started, uh, first came in, I believe, in 1969. And he was uh, put together as a tag team partner of Jack Donovan. As Donovan's partner prior to that period, Ron Reed, went on to greener pastures or, or perhaps sunnier pastures. John, who was, who was Ron Reed? Ron Reed, fill me in. Oh, done. Buddy Colt. Buddy Colt. Yes. yes. Uh, Buddy Colt was uh, Jack Donovan's partner for a few years in the 60s, uh, but he decided to go his own way, uh, and they brought in Jerry Brown to be Donovan's partner. Uh, after a, a couple of months, Donovan breaks his ankle and uh, is sidelined, and Bill Watts remembers a young preliminary wrestler he had met in the AWA uh, by the name of Dale Hay, and brings him in as Buddy Roberts, and the Hollywood Blondes mm. are born. So they start for the McGurk Territory in 1970. They came back uh, for a short run in 1973, and then they had a pretty significant run in starting in 1975. They won the tag team titles from Bill Watts and Greg Valentine. Greg Valentine in a very rare babyface role, something you don't see a whole lot of. 
and they lost the titles uh, at a TV taping to Greg Valentine and Gorgeous George Jr. And this, uh, the angle, the storyline in this is one of those Bill Watts specials that we see numerous times over the year when there's a TV title match. It was scheduled to be the Blondes uh, defending against Watts and Valentine. But earlier in the show or before the match, uh, Watts is attacked by Waldo Von Erich and taken out of the match. And Gorgeous George Jr., who had just returned to the territory, took his place, and they end up winning the titles, and then they take it around the horn on the house shows. Um, They also, and then uh, they regained the titles, and then they had a a neat little heel-versus-heel feud with the team of Buck Robley and Bob Slaughter. Yes, before he was a Sarge, he actually was kind of sort of a hippie. Um, there, that's the interesting thing in the early seventies, there were a lot of heel wrestlers whose gimmick was that of a hippie, which <laughs> if you think about the average wrestling fan at the time, the hippies yeah. are, are perhaps a greater evil than the Russians. <laughs> um, Water, have you, have you has seen great hair. As a hippie yeah, he, he has a, he has very, uh, stringy, uh, long hair. Have you seen any, uh, actual footage of him wrestling before he was a Sarge? I've seen there's a, a, a pretty recently I stumbled across something of him in Japan uh, and he's got the, uh, the the long hair before he's a Sarge. Uh, his, his, his work is still he still works like Sarge and Slaughter. You know, you recognize the, the work, you know, even under a mask, you know, when he's uh, the super destroyer, he still you can still recognize the work if you if you know Sarge. But it's so funny seeing him with that hair and like the the. The, like the, I think he was wearing like red, white, and blue tights or something. Not, but not in a uh, Sergeant Slaughter type way. Just a, just an I'm an know, American. I'm so an American he, way. Yeah. He was so he was Super Destroyer, and his name that I see pulled up in results, they list him as Super Destroyer Mark Three. Yeah. What do you know what that means? Because I don't. I think there was a, I think there was another. I seen him as two. I don't know if he was two or three. Now that I think about it. Uh, I, might be I just don't know confused, where the yeah, mark was, comes in. Uh, I think it was that just was like just... instead of Mr. Wrestling 2 sort of thing, but they're just going to call him Mark 2. It mark sounds II. a little fancier, I guess. Yeah, and I, I remember guess. there was an angle with him uh, and uh, disowning. Uh, there's footage of this that's great of uh, him uh, disowning Lord Alfred Hayes as manager. And it's uh, it, it's it's a great some great footage if you could find it. Not to get off the Jerry Brown topic, but well, yeah, well, but you brought up one of the more underrated talkers in in pro wrestling, and that was Lord Alfred Hayes. Um, a lot of people only know him from his uh, being a a shill uh, spokesman for the WWF, but uh, when he was a wrestler and a manager, his uh, his his promos were really really good. Um, because he was doing that, you know, you know, the, the, from the Royal family or, you know, the highfalutin British. Um, so he had to be somewhat proper, but at the same time, he really did a good job of conveying that, that, uh, if need be, he would get down and dirty. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Judo. Yeah. (laughs) Judo Al Hayes, but, uh, Jerry Brown also came back in 1978 for McGurk and he teamed with, uh, hangman Bobby Jaggers. 
And then uh, he was a regular for McGurk after the split with Watts from 79 through 82. He was a regular for most of the tri-state wrestling run. As a matter of fact, um, using some statistics I uh, created, he was actually the fifth most prominent wrestler in the territory for that two and a half year run. Um, and this uh, is segueing into something I released uh, earlier this month uh, via PayHip which is a uh, place where you can download for free or name your own price. But I put together an 85-page PDF document chronicling the whole uh, two-and-a-half-year run of tri-state wrestling, which was Leroy McGurk's uh, territory after the split with Watts, which operated in Oklahoma and parts of Arkansas and Missouri. And as I recently found out for a very brief time, kind of sort of operated in Amarillo. But this is the most detailed look at McGurk's territory uh, that you'll find anywhere. We do a quarter-by-quarter look at the roster using our spot ratings and our feud scores. You can see, um, you know, the depth chart and what the top feuds are. And it's a pretty interesting roster uh, because we see a lot of youngsters on their way up, like Coco Ware. King Parsons, Brian Blair, Eddie Gilbert, Ricky Morton. Um, but there's also a lot of vets who had previously worked for McGurk in the past. Uh, Skander Akbar is there the whole time as a uh, sort of a player, coach, manager, and wrestler. Also, the spoiler is there for a while. And of course, uh, Bob Sweetan and Mike George uh had a, a notable feud there. Uh, and I, John, I know I sent you the almanac before I released it to the general public. Yeah. Uh, I do want your thoughts on it. But for listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, you can go to payhip.com slash charting the territories. And like I said, you can either download for free or you can name your own price. Um, I put a lot of time into these things, but we're doing it not for the money. We're doing it just to spread uh, the word around and, and, and to get these u- unique statistics uh, into people's hands. Uh, we also have the advertised lineup for every house show I could have in my database, which for two and a half years was just under 500 house shows. So they're running a pretty regular schedule. But John, what were your thoughts on the uh, Tri-State Wrestling 1979 to 1982 Almanac? Yeah, like you said, this is the absolutely the most detailed look at the McGurk territory from, from the year 79 to 82 after the split. Um, and it's it's like eighty something pages. It's just insane. It's so it's it could be seriously. This should be a book. Hopefully someday it will be a book. Yeah, but if you're a fan of those, you know the Mark James Scott Teal books, I would implore you to give this a download and a read. Um, it's 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 full of information that are, it's not compiled anywhere. Um, and this is a really interesting, you know, few years for this territory. And if you're whether you consider yourself a, a novice uh, or fancy yourself an expert on this territory of these years. This will be of interest to you either way. Yeah, highly, highly recommend. It, it's just Great a, work, a period always. of time where there's not a whole lot of info out there. And in particular, uh, I included two articles I found in the Tulsa newspaper, one of which was about a lawsuit filed by a wrestler uh, who come and it totally he totally breaks kayfabe and claim, you know, basically admits that, you know, wins and losses are predetermined and champions are chosen ahead of time. But he was upset that um, he did not get a lengthy as lengthy a title run as he was originally promised. So you can read about that article and also another article in uh, the fall of 1981 about seven wrestlers fired 
for, quote-unquote, going on strike. They actually no-showed a uh, house show in Oklahoma City, and according to the paper, uh, McGurk fired them. According to one of the wrestlers, it was more of a quitting situation that by by no-showing the house show, they were basically uh, quitting the promotion. So it's a it's a he-said-he-said he said scenario, but you can find out yep. who those seven wrestlers are, and one of them uh, we've actually uh, we've been talking about so far in this episode— Hint, hint. Um, although he wasn't actually <laughs> fired, um, it seems that Jerry Brown, who was feuding with Ron McFarlane, they were um, two of the seven that no showed and were supposedly fired, but they actually came back and worked for a few more weeks and it built to a um, a steel cage match in Tulsa, which was won by McFarlane, who was the babyface in their feud. But then that was both men's last night in the territory. So it was like that Lesnar Goldberg WrestleMania match. <laughs> Um, so again, uh, that PDF file is at payhip.com slash charting the territories. And, uh, I'll announce now there will be another one of these coming out next month and it will cover another kind of sort of satellite, uh, slash adjacent related territory to the McGurk territory. Uh, so we will, you can look for that in October. And of course, also in this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the other time periods we cover on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And we're going to go back to the mailbag because it was such a smashing ah. success last month with, <laughs> with over two questions submitted from listeners. And I think we actually equaled that this time around. So consistency sure. is key. And if you have any questions. Our mailman has an achy back after this. These, uh, I, well, I'm mad at my mailman because my water bill, uh, I, I mailed it in on September 1st. And today it is September 16th. And the water company claims they never got it. So uh, <laughs> apparently the post office thought it was my, you know, mail-in ballot <laughs> for the election and just, you know, tossed it in a dumpster or something. Oh, uh, anyway, but if you have questions after um, listening to our podcast or checking out our blog, you can always hit us up on Twitter. You can reach me at Al Gets Wrestling and John is at at John, J-O-N underscore Boucher. That's B-O-U-C-H-E-R. I'm getting really good at spelling and pronouncing uh, names uh, after the lesson I had last month with all the Louisiana towns. I am now the world's foremost expert. Boucher on, or Boucher? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, until you tell me all the time I've been pronouncing it wrong and who knows. Um, but a little bit more about charting the territories for some of our newer listeners. Charting the territories is a data driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era focusing on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory from the late 50s to the mid-80s. In addition to getting records of every possible house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to. The first is a SPOT rating, and SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time. It measures a wrestler's average position or spot on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher spot rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. We show spot as a number between 0 and 1, and it's expressed as a two-digit decimal. A spot rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. And the other statistic is a feud score, 
FEUD stands for Frequent Encounters Using Data, and it's used to measure what I call the intensity of a feud. It's based on how many times a match happens and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it will have a low feud score. If it's happening in multiple towns with rematches over multiple weeks, it's going to have a higher feud score. And as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud, and 40 or higher means it's a major feud. Uh, but we're going to go, we're going to start looking at September 1972, John, and this was a long time ago, and I thought it'd be kind of neat to look back at, at pop culture and sort of see what was going on in, in the entertainment world in ah. September 1972. As I was telling you, I always think about those Simpsons flashback episodes where Homer goes, the year was 1972. Everybody was discoing, and, you know. Um, but some interesting movies were playing in theaters uh, in September 1972. There were not one, but two vampire Ooh. flicks you have dracula ad 1972 starring christopher lee peter cushing and stephanie beecham and the black exploitation classic blackula it also saw the directorial debut of wes craven and his cult classic the last house on the left and just to tie this into the mcgurk territory a movie that was set in louisiana sounder Ah, out, that's the uh, sounder the is the one of those that I have never seen. The the poster, like the the, the poster for it, always looks so sad. Like we, the, uh, I saw it in school. They showed it. Um, I think we. I think I. I was lucky enough. I got to see both Sounder and Old Yeller. Um, oh wow! Yes. Um, so, wow. John, do you have any memories or, or thoughts on any of those <sighs> movies? Man, um, like. <sighs> Last House on the Left was one of my like most sought after movies when I was a kid. I was so weird when I was a kid, man. Uh, like I, I don't even know. I wouldn't. I love these. I would. They weren't weren't even really horror movies. They're just sort of like exploitation films. Like I loved that stuff when I was a kid. And the movie they were so hard to find the videotapes of at the, at the rental store. Um, like that. Like Last Last House on the Left. Spit on. I, I spit on your grave. Faces of Death. Those were always like the ones I wanted to see because I could never find them. Um, and yeah, they're violent and controversial and, and quote unquote banned in some places, but I was also, you know, 10 years old trying to rent them. So that was probably a lot of the, the trouble, uh, with yeah, the actually, last house I, on the left is currently on Hulu and I actually watched it, uh, very recently. I, I understand why it's, you know, a, why it's a cult classic. It's, it's probably very influential in many ways, but as a movie, yeah. it's not very good. No, it's very, I, I like, as a kid though, I enjoyed like when I finally got my hands on it. Uh, I mean, totally different experience than watching it now as an adult in 2020, but it was so crude and dirty and it was like, oh my God, I feel like I was watching like a, a snuff film or something. Um, you know, and the cast members were just unknown before. And I think one of the guys was like the only thing he did was like porn movies aside from this movie. Um, and Sean Cunningham was the producer also from uh, Friday the 13th. Yeah, but there, there's one actor that not only ha had some notable roles afterwards, but actually very recently has been part of pop culture. Um, one mm -hmm. of the two bumbling police officers was Martin Cove, who uh, was Martin in Cove. Rambo First Blood Part Two, and also in the Karate Kid, and now oh. in, the, uh, in the Cobra Kai series that just uh, moved over to the Netflix that has been getting a lot of buzz. He, he is John Kreese. Oh, nice. Yeah, just finished season one of Cobra Kai. It, really is, fun I, I, it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it, I, I, love, I love season one. Oh. 
Yeah, but yeah, we'll probably I, so, finish uh, season two this this weekend. We'll probably do season two, but yeah. anyway, I was watching. I was back watching, to Last House. I was yeah, I was watching Last House on the Left. And I'm like, that guy looks familiar, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So I go to IMDb, and I'm like, oh my god, that's John Kreese. I literally was just I, watching yeah. him in Cobra Kai. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't recognize the name, but when I, now that you mentioned the Karate Kid thing, I figured it out. Another interesting uh, cast member is uh, David Hess. He plays the lead lead bad guy. I forget the, I forget his name, but uh, he was also he did the did the score for the the, the movie as well, which is a really weird. Uh, I actually like it. I think it's really effective in the movie. It has this like gentle acoustic guitar and and flute music while there's like a brutal brutal assault or disemboweling happening. Yeah, I th- I think it, it that type of effect was used to much better results years later. Uh, I think you know Huey Lewis in the American Psycho or even some yeah. of Rob Zombie's uh, directorial work where he sometimes you know takes the music down tempo. Um, yeah. It's. I get what they're trying to do. It. It didn't quite work uh, to me, and uh, particularly at the end of the movie when they're showing the credits and they co- and they go back to that, uh, you know, low key uh, you know, or almost acoustic music. And when they're showing the cast members as the movie's over, um, they're all in happy. You know, they're all smiling and and, and this and that <laughs> after what we just saw. It, it's so weird, but. I, you know, I understand why it's very influential um, and it probably, you know, spawned the careers, not only of West, but but many of his uh, protégés, pupils, what have you. So it's an important movie. And the same guy who did the, the soundtrack, uh, David Hess, also um, was the f- first guy uh, to record and release All Shook Up, predating Elvis's version by like a year. Wow. I thought that was a little fun little interesting. And he also wrote uh, Speedy Gonzalez as popularized by Pat Boone, which is a little weird yeah, fun yeah. fact about he, David Hess there. Also, yeah. very good soundtracks also on Dracula 72 AD and, and Blackula, of course. Blackula soundtrack is freaking awesome. But uh, Dracula AD 72 uh, is kind of like a lot. It's very funky for uh, like a hammer film, especially. I think it's uh, one of the guys from Manfred Mann did the soundtrack to that, but we're not Man, here to talk wait, about the Manfred Mann that. wasn't just one guy. No, no, no. Michael next, now you're going to tell now. Yeah. Next thing you're going to tell me is that Pink Floyd was more than one person. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. By the way, which one's yeah. Pink? <laughs> Michael right. Vickers. I, I believe Michael Vickers is the guy, but I'm not 100. percent I have to right. have to Google. So there you go. So there's a little bit of the movie world in 1972. But we are not yep. here, John, to chart the box office. We're here to chart the McGurk Watts wrestling territory. Uh, and in September 1972, standing at the top of the charts were Bill Watts and Danny Hodge, which is probably no surprise uh, if you were familiar with the territory at the time. Bill Watts is the North American heavyweight champion, and Danny Hodge is the NWA World Junior heavyweight champion. And then looking at the spot ratings, which you can find on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we find something that we don't see very often, and that is uh, Bill Watts having a perfect spot rating of 1.00. One of the things I've learned as I've sort of come up with this statistic and applied it to various territories at various times is that most of the time in a territory you have a handful of baby faces and a handful of heels that rotate in and out of the main events uh, from night to night, from town to town. Even in a territory such as this one, which is running two or three shows a night, 
your top baby face isn't always in the main event. Uh, probably a lot of times it has to do with the syncing up of angles that are done on TV um, to the bicycle throughout the network. Um, but it, it's really not that often that we see a wrestler with a 1.00 in Watts for every week in September has a 1.00. Uh, Danny Hodge is above the 0.95 mark every week as well um the rest of the babyface roster in descending order of the of the main eventers are ivan putsky grizzly smith igor putsky who is rick ferrara uh, and ken mantell and tom jones and on the heel side the top heel is dale lewis uh former uh amateur wrestler and former uh, college roommate and acquaintance of bill watts uh, he his spot rating is, is right around the 0.95 mark for most of the month. Following him are Terry Garvin and Duke Myers. And John, you just posted, um, I think it was you. It was either you or Zellner. What did, an, did I? Or an old article about Terry Garvin from 1961. No, I believe that was, was Seth that Hansen. Or Seth Han. Okay, Seth Hansen. He is think, wrestling the way you Hansen. remember it, was, uh, it. Is his Twitter handle? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Highly recommend it if you don't you don't already follow. Yeah, I was I was reading as I was as I was eating dinner, I was looking at that photo. That's why <laughs> it was talking about how uh, Terry Garvin in sixty one was billing himself as gorgeous Terry Garvin, and that he had uh, uh, yeah. sort of I, I think either worked with or had seen gorgeous George and sort of uh, adopted a little more of his flamboyant ring style. Yeah. Um, and he at this it, time, it's funny seeing photos of him. Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 don't, don't be sorry. Um, but he and Duke Myers. photos of him and, and Jimmy together, him and Jimmy together at that, at that time. It's, it's, it's so funny how, how Jimmy is almost unrecognizable when you look at him. Uh, like if you, if you don't know, it's young Jim Garvin ahead of time. It, it's very surprising seeing him. He looks like a totally different human being. Yeah. He's working as Terry's manager and billed as his younger brother. And I believe he's legitimately 19 or 20 years old in 1972. Um, the other main event heels, we have Bob Sweetan, we have Dr. X, who is Jim Osborne, and then just barely above uh, the main eventer threshold is Lorenzo Parente, and his tag team partner Bobby Hart is actually technically a notch below him and is, is uh, in the upper mid-carder category. Uh, Parente and Hart are on their way out of the territory, they're being phased out, um, and one of two things, John, typically happens when someone is leaving the territory as far as their spot rating goes. Um, a lot of times, particularly with baby faces, we see their spot rating go down. They're sort of moved down the cards and used to put over um, new heels that are on their way up the card. Um, and earlier in 1972, we saw this with Ramon Torres, who had been the uh, world junior heavyweight champion. And after he lost it and he's on his way out of the territory, he was moved down the cards and he's putting over heels um, who are moving up the cards. So sometimes that's how wrestlers are sort of ridden out of a territory. Other times their spot rating stays the same or in some cases even goes up as they're put. And this is more often the case with heels because they're put into major stipulation matches, hair matches. Loser leave town cage matches, and since those usually end with the babyface winning, um, they'll put the heel in that in that spot to give a babyface the rub. And we saw that in 1971 
with Dusty Rhodes. When he finished his run in this territory, he put over Ivan Putski in uh, major mm-hmm. main event stipulation matches for about two weeks straight. And Putski was new to the territory, so uh, he's getting his first main events. And they're basically using the equity that they had built up uh, in Dusty being a top guy for his eight-month run there and using it to give Ivan the rub. He debuted, I believe, he, he, he came in, I believe, the summer of 71. Who, Dusty or Ivan? Putsky. Oh, Putsky. It, it might have been the fall, um, but it was uh, probably you know, somewhere somewhere in the late late summer, early fall. Gotcha, gotcha. And I think Dusty finishes yeah. up in September or October, um, does a tour of Japan, then comes back just for three shows over Christmas, and then in uh beginning of 72, he goes to the AWA for a very long run there. Yeah, Putsky, Putsky's one of those guys... Um, who I still, no matter how long it is, I still have trouble thinking of him wrestling anywhere other than the Northeast and the WWF. Like I just, so whenever I see a photo of him in another territory or working in Houston, it just so, it still blows my mind. I don't know why he was so popular in the Northeast and it's so hard to explain that to people sometimes how and, popular and, he yeah, was. Like. And it, it really is. And the same goes for someone who we'll probably talk about in a little bit, Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, you know, we can sort of look at him from a work rate standpoint now and see that the, the, there wasn't much there, but he was over. And that's yeah, why he was, was, uh, you know, was, you know, he was a, obviously he was a trusted, you know, ally of, of the office. So that's why he was kept strong. But, um, you know, when you're put in that role in the WWF, you know, this is a testament to the power of the promoter and booker uh, that they can take someone, um, who, whose skill level might be lacking, but by putting them in a prominent role, they make the fans, you know, believe in them and invest in them. And I, I remember as a kid, I started watching WWF. WWF in the early 80s uh, was the tail end of Strongbow's career. But man, when he made that, when he started to make that comeback, when he started that little, oh, yeah, you know, war, war dance and this and that, I, as a kid, I loved it. Yeah. Now, my, my Polish grandmother loved Ivan Putski. Whenever he would yell like Dobra or whatever he would yell, she would yell right back at the TV. Um, I think it was, I, excuse me if I'm botching the guy's name, Steve Jenner Raleigh. Uh, was on McAdams podcast stick to wrestling a couple of weeks ago. And he, I think attempted to do a, a charting of the territory uh, of the WWF in 79. And I think he was saying that Putsky was, you know, second, you know, as far as main event baby faces go out behind only Bob Backlund, which is says a lot about Putsky's place in the, in the company then. Yeah. Um, they, well, they, you know, they also, they protected their, their baby faces that were there for a while. So, you know, you look at the babyface side, whoever the champion is, is, is always going to be number one. And we talked about perfect spot ratings before in the WWF, the babyface champion always had a perfect 1.00 spot rating. They're yep. never in a, you know, semi main. Um, but then, you know, then beyond that, you have, a Pedro or an Ivan or a Strongbow, and then you have your tag team champions or your you know babyface contenders for whoever the tag team champions are. And if they're not wrestling tag team matches, they're usually in a singles bout putting over the next world title challenger. Yep, yep, that's how they did it. It's a uh, Putski. Yeah, you said Putski was summer fall '71, and there's I have like some conflicting info timeline wise on this, so feel free to correct me, jump in. Um, 
But at this point in his career, Putsky is still doing like the mighty Igor light type gimmick. Um, like the friendly, friendly Polish guy speaks no English, naive, but possessing of superhuman strength. Um, I think Watt, Watt has him on TV doing various feats of strength type gimmicks. Uh, and eventually they do like a, a Pepper Gomez type thing where Watts sets up a ladder for Putsky, uh, and they have fans. Uh, I'm not sure if they're real fans or just plants. Jump off the ladder onto Putsky's stomach. Uh, and then Dusty comes out, heel Dusty, uh, vicious Dusty. Uh, dirty Dusty. And Watts dirty Dusty Rhodes. Dirty Dusty. <laughs> Watts tries to warn Putsky and tells him, like, this might not be a great idea, Ivan. Uh, but the Putsky, being naive, agrees to let Dusty jump on his stomach. So Dusty climbs up. But instead of jumping on Ivan Putsky's stomach, he pulls a pulls the Ray Stevens and jumps on Putsky's throat with cowboy boots, injuring Putsky. And then later in the show, Watts talks about the incident, tells a story about how like, even though Ivan Putsky is usually very nice, easygoing guy, you know, once there was a guy at the gym and, you know, he started something with Ivan and Ivan nearly tore him limb from limb. And then you know, Leroy McGurk comes out, says, you know, he wants to put Putsky in the ring with Rhodes. And Putsky hadn't even been in the ring yet in a, in a match. Um, so that, you know, Putsky can get his revenge on Dusty. And this part is that's really great. Like Dusty apparently comes out kind of rattled, nervous looking and apologizing, saying that, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I just I just slipped on the ladder, which is a great a great touch that really you know, excels the angle with those little touches there. Uh, and after that, uh, Putsky says his next uh, in-ring appearance was a surprise to the majority of the roster, as well as the security guards policeman at ringside, uh, because Putsky was, was seated at ringside, um, you know, ostensibly as, as, as one of a, a friend of Bill Watts, but he does a run-in during one of Dusty's matches and, and jumps Dusty and the security guys aren't smart enough. So they're like pummeling Putsky with their, the, the cop flashlights, you know, those big, flashlights so he's covered in bruises and bumps for a week because of this and normally these sort of like uh, audience members becoming wrestlers or little angles are a little weird but this is one that i really wish i could have seen as, as it aired because it just sounds so 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 great to me yeah i mean you know the ladder angle is is such a classic and has been used you know in, in oh, yeah. several territories over the years it, it works yeah. every time and you know like you said the added touch of even though dusty is the the big tough heel and this and that he still exhibits a little bit of quote-unquote chicken shit tendencies by trying to beg off and claim it was a yeah. mistake and this you know this is uh, you know nowadays we we don't we don't necessarily have heels like that uh, as much as we used to but they they all you know had that um, you know, sort of side. You know, nowadays, it's about the heel that everything they do, they're technically justified. Um, you know, think about a lot of the comic book villains like the Joker and whatnot. Um, when you really look at how, you know, their their life progressed from their point of view, they absolutely feel justified in their actions. And and the classic wrestling heels, uh, even the really tough ones, still a lot of them had that side when the going got really tough. They They still tried to beg out of it if they could. Uh, and, and, and that's just how, you know, they, they position their good guys and their bad guys back in the day. You, you mentioned Ivan originally, you know, sort of had a mighty Igor gimmick. So speaking of Igor, he's got a cousin here and that's Igor Putsky, um, who is Rick Ferrara and Igor leaves during the month to go to Japan for the IWE. Um, so the territory did an injury angle. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think it was Dale Lewis. It might've been a Garvin and Myers, 
who were uh, doing a tag team feud with the Putskies, but I think it was Dale because Ivan moves into a singles feud with Dale Lewis during the month. So that seems more likely. But in talking about the tag team ranks, it gets very confusing. Uh, Ken Mantell and Tom Jones win the U.S. tag team titles from Lorenzo Parente and Bobby Hart in late August, but the heels actually run off um, while still in possession of the physical belts. Um, and this is all at, at uh, house shows, I believe, in Shreveport. Uh, a week later, Mantell and Jones defend against Garvin and Myers. It doesn't say for sure that they don't have the belts with them, but that's sort of implied is that Hart and Parente still have the physical belts. Um, but Garvin and Myers win the third fall after interference from Jim Garvin. But uh, the ref was alerted to the interference by the fans, restarted the match, and the baby faces won. So now all three teams are claiming they should be the champs. Mantell and Jones are champs of record. Hart and Parente have the physical belts. And Garvin and Myers claim they were cheated out of the belts. So this leads to a, uh, a three-team mini tournament on September 4th in Shreveport. And they did not do three-way matches the way we know of them today. This was basically a round robin mini tournament where they started out with two of the teams. And then when one team gets defeated, they go out and the other team comes in. And in this particular case, um, it was the first team to win two mouths, two matches in a row would win. Uh, and and in this case, on September 4th in Shreveport, the match and the titles were won by Terry Garvin and Duke Myers, who then have a little heel versus heel feud with Hart and Parente, who are finishing up. Um, so that's sort of your, your main event roster in September 1972. And there really aren't uh, a whole lot of upper mid-carders. And this is something... I see occasionally, and, and John, when I first came up with this concept of a spot rating, originally I thought there were going to be three categories, main eventers, mid-carders, and preliminary wrestlers. But as I uh, applied it, uh, I noticed that there were some wrestlers that weren't quite main eventers, but were definitely more than mid-carders. Um, and uh, we've talked about 1980 uh, on this podcast in the past, and I think perfect examples of guys uh, that would be upper mid-carters that are not quite main eventers, but definitely more than mid-carters would be Stephen Littlebear and Stan Stasiak. Um, they, you know, are clearly um, not middle of the card, but they are absolutely a level below the Freebirds and Orndorff and DiBiase and Junkyard Dog and Robley at the time. So uh, as I developed the, these the, the spot rating and the different cutoff points, I came up with uh, main eventers, upper mid-carders, mid-carders, and preliminary wrestlers. But sometimes we don't really see anyone in the upper mid-carder level unless they're using it as a a waypoint. Uh, uh, they're on the way up or on the way down. I mentioned Bobby Hart earlier. He had been a main eventer and both he and Parente are being phased down the cards. So they sort of hit that level where they're technically upper mid carders. Um, and in September, we see a newcomer moving up the cards. He started out in the opening matches, uh, winning matches over preliminary wrestlers and mid carders. And he starts the month with a 0.61 spot rating. And at the end of the month, he's at a 0.83. So he went all the way up mm. from uh, just the, the lower reaches of the upper mid-carder 
category, which is between a 0 0.60 and a 0 0.80, and ends up uh, technically a main eventer by the end of the month. And that is Tarzan Tyler, who's probably best known for his stints in Florida, Georgia, and the WWWF. Um, but like so many wrestlers over the years, they they worked in so many different territories over time. Oh yeah. But John, you're, you're, you know a lot more about Tarzan Tyler than I, I only know a little bit about his Florida run and that I believe he was the first, well, well, one, one half of the first WWF tag champs with Luke Graham. Correct. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He, uh, yeah. Born, uh, born, born in Canada, real name, Camille Tourville. Um, oddly enough, Tarzan, not a ring name. That was a, a nickname he had since childhood, which is a great nickname for a little kid, Tarzan. Do we know why? Um, was he swinging? Was he no. swinging from a tree? He did not explain why. He did no. not explain why. This, there's, Apparently, there's, there's no trees story, in he, Canada, according to Flip Gordon, no because tree. there's no forest fires <laughs> up there. <laughs> oh God! Whew. I need to drink water after that. Wow. <laughs> sorry, Flip. No, actually, not sorry, Flip. Flip, Flip brought it all on yeah. himself. He did. He did. He did. Well, it sure wasn't gravity that brought it on him. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, he, he, I think it was, he was working a baby face um, initially as a baby face. And I think uh, he says it was after a conversation with, uh, in Canada with Killer Kowalski. And they're, they're talking about money, which wrestlers seem to like to talk about money. Uh, and after that conversation, he comes to the conclusion that maybe there's more money to be made as a heel and that maybe with his look and size, I think he was like billed at 6'3", 270, uh, you know, it was difficult for him to get sympathy as a babyface some of the time. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure of the, of the politics at work there in the Montreal office per se, but for whatever reason, he wasn't given much of a push early on. So he decides to go to the U.S. in 1959 to attempt to make a name for himself there. Um, and during his first appearance, I think it was St. Louis, uh, in 61, I believe, uh, Sam Wichnick tells him that his last name was, was too difficult for Americans to pronounce and that they won't remember it. So he christens him Tarzan Tyler, which keeps the alliterative flair of his original name. Uh, and, uh, from there, cause he originally working as Tarzan Torville early on. Um, and it's after that, after the name change, it was off to the races for the guy, man. Like he wrestled, wrestled Vern for the, the, the AWA belt over the next few years. He wrestles Fez for the NWA belt, something like 10 times. Uh, so clearly he's got these U S promotions, uh, behind him now. Uh, Georgia basically created a title for him that he held until he lost to Fez that year in Atlanta, uh, right before he left to go to Florida. And like you said, he's huge, 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 huge in Florida. Um, and he, he sort of sets up Florida as his home base. And he spends the majority of his time uh, from like 64 until uh, 71 with Florida as his home base. Um, and he has like something like 15, upwards of 15 different title runs, with basically every, every singles title and, and tag belt in the territory while also, you know, barnstorming within nearly every U.S. territory and doing tours of Japan and New Zealand. Um, and his first run, like you said, in the WWF in 65, uh, just won one match at the Garden only against Bruno, uh, September 27th, which is not a really remarkable uh, match. Um, what happened after the match is, is remarkable. After the match, Bruno was out at a restaurant celebrating, 
and his belt was stolen from his car, and it was never found despite a $10,000 reward being offered by... I didn't know they had Longhorn Steakhouses back in 1965. (laughs) We're roasting everyone tonight. (laughs) This is the original. Uh, Never found the belt. Um, uh, And he doesn't appear back in the WWF until 71, where under under the tutelage of Captain Lil Albano, uh, he and Crazy Luke Graham, they become the first WWF World Tag Team Champions. I think it's the, the second of 16 tag team championships for uh, Captain Lou there from 12 or 13 different teams. Uh, I think, and I think this is the first was uh, the Mongols and he actually bought their contract from Tony Angelo when they already had the belt. So you could say that Tyler and Graham were the first team that the guiding light guided to the belt. Right. Uh, we talked about Angelo and, a little uh, bit last month. Uh, well, he was yeah. the Russian angel in the, in 61. Uh, and July of 71, uh, Tyler and Graham were main eventing at MSG against Pedro Morales and Gorilla Monsoon. And that night, July 24th, 71, they set a new attendance record, 21,912 paid, which yields, uh, a gate of $103,485, which is the first gate ever over a hundred thousand dollars in New York. Uh, so having conquered America, what does Tarzan Tyler do next? Goes back to Montreal. Um, and before heading to, to down to McGurk in 72, Tyler appeared in Australia, Hawaii, and Canada. And on, uh, June 13th of 72, he's working in Montreal for Grand Prix. Uh, he has a match with Andre the Giant. Uh, Andre had him up for his finishing move, which is a kneeling belly to belly pile driver, now more popularly known as the tombstone pile driver, and accidentally drops Tyler on his head. Uh, the story gets, Interesting, interesting here. Uh, Bertrand Bear and Pat LaProd actually go into this story a little bit in their Andre book, which is fantastic, highly, highly recommended, fantastically researched. Um, Tyler was legitimately injured. Uh, he had to cancel a Japanese tour because of an injury resulting from getting dropped on his head. But when you read some older accounts of this incident, it's interesting uh, because the injury is described as much more severe uh, most likely because he didn't appear back in Montreal until September of 73. So they have this whole story of a year plus recovery from a devastating, presumably neck injury being sort of cooked up. So it seems as if like, yeah, there was a legitimate injury to the extent where he did have to cancel a late June Japanese tour, but nothing severe enough to keep him from starting wrestling for McGurk in, in August. Uh, and when he gets, when he gets back to Montreal, uh, he starts using a, a loaded boot gimmick where he'd, he'd tap the boot three times on the mat before stopping his opponent. Like it sounds like basic and corny in, in 2020, but it was an incredible, incredible heat generator. And they'd always do like an angle on TV where the baby face would try to get the boot off, but they'd almost get it, but they never would. Eventually, I think Edward Carpentier gets it off and there's a metal plate stuffed in the boot. But he remained a top heel, top star in the territory till they closed in 75. And they, they had a lot of talent then. Carpentier, Killer Kowalski, Andre, Mad Dog Sean, Domino Jonathan. So a little little loaded boot goes a long way. And, and this story with the exaggerated injury that I was talking about, it's just a, it's a great example of why the research that you do, Al, and the, the well-researched book of uh, the Andre book by Bertrand and Barrett Palaprod, it's so important, and I find this so, research so important to, to wrestling history. Um, you know, because Tarzan Tyler talks himself about this injury in an interview, I think, from 83. 
and he himself even refers to being out of commission for for ten months or something. Um, and evenly as, as within the last ten years, you see fans on Grand Prix history message boards talking about this injury that Tyler had this devastating injury, and he was when he was finally coming back. He had to do this loaded boot gimmick, doing to having uh, adjusting his working style because of the injury. You know, like like you know, like Stone Cold Steve Austin would do after his injury. Um, you know, unaware that he was working for McGurk just two months later. And yeah, and a lot of times in in the case of the wrestlers, they were they said it so long as part of you know the storyline yeah, that that in their mind it becomes real. And it's yep. in many times hard to separate fact from fiction. So a lot of times the wrestlers aren't intentionally lying. When they say this years after the fact that he was out for over a year, he just truly, you know, uh, it's not the Mandela effect, but there's some other name for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, you know, you say it enough and it, it becomes true in your mind. And, yeah, it's important, as I mentioned, so many of these guys, even if they were known, uh, you know, talk about Ivan or, or Tarzan, if they're known primarily for being in one or two places, chances are they were in a lot of other places as well. And, and, and you know, in many ways, we want to not only chart the territories, but chart the wrestlers' paths through these territories, because a lot of times there are stories to be told in that. Sometimes you see, um, you know, two particular territories have a lot of back and forth between them. Um, sometimes it's based on geography. Obviously, you know, if you're working for Goulas and you finish up, it's probably a lot easier to just swing down to Alabama for Gulf Coast or, you know, over, uh, you know, over into Arkansas for McGurk. Um, but sometimes, you know, you see a lot of things where, for example, um, uh, Heart of America and East Texas, a lot of times and Amarillo. Um, a lot of times work together. So you see wrestlers going back and forth between Kansas City and, you know, West Texas, which isn't necessarily right next door to one another. Um, but the uh, territories had a good working agreement. And at the time um, for McGurk, when Fritz and Vern um, had pieces of the territory, in addition to Watts and Hodge and Leroy, again, you see uh, some crossover between those territories. Um, you know, Watts, of course, has pieces of Georgia and Florida, so you see him go there a lot. But it, there are stories to be learned, told and lessons to be learned from, from seeing wrestlers' paths. And particularly as they are on their way up, perhaps they're working in some of these smaller territories. Uh, and, and once they establish themselves as a draw, um, then to see what level of territories they work for, you get a feel for which territories the wrestlers viewed as most important and most wanted to work for. Yeah, I love them, and this stuff is just so so interesting to me. And like I said, I love I love when this research will sort of correct the the errors like this. And it's like wrestling, of course, never allows you know never allowed the truth to get in the way of a good story. But I do like knowing when the story is a story and when it's a fact. You know. Yeah, but and a lot of times we we don't know for facts. There's one I bring up a lot every time on the anniversary of Terry Funk's first uh, documented uh, wrestling match, which was in Amarillo against Sputnik. I always come up with, well, that might not have been true because the weekend <laughs> before, I've got an ad, I've got an article. Um, I forget the town, but it's for a spot show in Texas um, where Terry Funk is advertised. Uh, and it's the weekend before his debut in Amarillo against Sputnik, which was the following Thursday. Um, we have no results for the show, so we don't know for a fact that he actually wrestled it, but he hmm. absolutely is advertised and, and acknowledged as, you know, son of Dory um, and brother of Dory Jr., who at that point had been wrestling for two years. This was uh, oh, wow. November or December of 65. Wow. And Dory debuted, I want to say, Dory Jr. debuted in 63. 
Um, so, you know, there's so, so many facts, things out there that people present as facts. And I, I, I always try and hedge my words um, when I say things, I don't want to, you know, particularly when it comes to things like how many title reigns someone had, um, who knows what the real number is? Because one of the things yeah. I've learned, the, the title histories, even the very incredibly researched ones, um, you know, in, in the, uh, the books and, uh, in the great his site, um, a lot of times this concept of a title being held up is a town specific angle. And uh, it's basically it's just it's just another form of a disputed finish to build to a rematch. And Uh. a lot of times when a title is held up, that's not acknowledged throughout the territory. Of course, there are times when it is. So that makes it even more confusing. So when it and in reading how they treated the newspaper articles, when the title is held up and in the rematch, the person that held it to begin with wins they don't quite consider it a new title reign. Um, They say the title's held up, but at the same time, they kind of sort of are acknowledging the, the previous champ as the champ. So it's just, it's so hard. And that's why, you know, that's why I developed these statistics because as far as things like win loss records, um, if you win a two out of three fall, you know, match with a 90 minute time limit, should that be the same as if you won a one fall 15 minute preliminary match? Yeah. Should they count the same? I say no. I also, John, I'll ask you this question. Um, oh. one of the standard finishes they did in title matches when you have a babyface challenger would be that the babyface, it's a two out of three falls match. The babyface wins the first fall and then they go the full time limit with no other falls being scored. Yeah. Who, but who wins, who is the winner of that match, John? Yeah, exactly. What do you do? Because most people will say the babyface won because you want to fall, but the rules of the match state that to win the match, you have to win two out of three falls. I consider that a no decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and again, do you count two out of three falls differently than one fall? And if your answer is yes, well then how about a Texas death match? Yeah, how do you? Oh Which my can God. have multiple yeah, like, falls. And most of the time in a Texas death match, the guy that loses the match actually won the most falls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and yet you have the, the Memphis with like, or, you know, or the, the you know, the, the, the 27 fall matches. Right. <laughs> 43 fall matches. Yeah, it's. So, so you know, that, that really in a nutshell is why I, you know, wanted to create these statistics and I, you know, I get they're, they're not perfect and, 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 but you know, you have to take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. Like I said, at the top of the podcast to come up with statistics, to, to quantify something. Um, but we've, you know, we've talked about Tarzan Tyler and while Tarzan was in the WWF for that run beginning in 1971, um, he, uh, stood both across the ring and, uh, across the tag rope from another wrestler who is in this territory in September, 1972. And that is Jim Valiant. Mm. Um, Valiant had his um, his first WWWF run uh, in starting in 1971. He's there as a babyface. He turns heel um, during a TV match uh, where he's teamed up with Chief J Strongbow, and he just sort of I think he walks out on Strongbow during the match, uh, and he ends up as a heel. And he's got matches against Strongbow and Pedro and Gorilla. Um, you know, uh, some of those matches with Pedro were title shots. Um, 
when Pedro was the world champ, I believe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so this was, he was the first valiant to wrestle there. Am I correct, John? Yes. Yep. Yep. So, and yeah. he's by himself. When, when do the other valiants first show up in, in uh, Vince land? I think they show up in, I want to say 74, 75. Um, and that's when he, uh, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy is back. And after, after that point, he's, uh, he's handsome, Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, here he is. Um, he's a baby face named Jim Valiant and he had actually been here once before. He had a very short run as a preliminary wrestler in 1970, where he was billed as Jim Valen, V-A-L-E-N. Um, but here he comes in in 72 and at first he's not pushed a whole lot. He's in the mid card level in September, but he actually does get a push and he actually, his arc here is very similar to what he did that first run in the WWF. He starts out as a babyface. He hits main event status in October and he's feuding with Dr. X who's one of the top heels here. Um, he turns heel in November. And again, since we don't have, um, you know, TV from this time frame, I'm not sure how it goes, but in looking at the uh, articles from the house shows, it looks like the turn might be done on the house shows. And in some towns, uh, it was against Tom Jones because he's, he's feuding with Tom Jones in some of the towns. And in other towns, he's actually feuding with Danny Hodge. Um, so he's he's given a pretty uh, big role here. Yeah. Tom Jones, uh, the very over uh, main event baby face as the first uh, full time African-American wrestler in the McGurk territory. Um, and Danny Hodge, of course, is the, uh, you know, longtime stalwart of the junior heavyweight division. Um, so he feuds with Hodge for a few weeks, and then he leaves the territory in December. So he's just in for a few months. Um, and after that, aside from a couple of appearances, probably after they're the UWF, when they're running the co-promotions with Crockett, I think that's it. Uh, I, of course, know Jimmy Valiant very well from my days as an independent wrestling manager. And John, Ooh. did you know I hold a pinfall victory in singles competition over WWF Hall of Famer Jimmy the Boogie Woogie Man Valiant? Yeah, you're one and zero against Jimmy. Uh, wow. No, I didn't say that. I'm just oh, saying oh. one of the. Well, I don't know if we ever had any other singles matches. We absolutely had uh, mixed tag matches out? where it'd be feet. myself and a wrestler against Jimmy and you know yeah. a referee or a midget or Debbie Combs or something like that. Gotcha. Um, I think this was our only singles match, and and basically what it was, uh, Chuck Jones who was a wrestler who was actually a, a legitimate student of a boogies wrestling camp in Shawsville, Virginia turned heel, uh, and helped me or, you know, there on the spot and, and, uh, helped oh. me beat Valiant. And then I managed Chuck Jones for a little while, but yes, I hold a pinfall victory over a world wrestling federation hall of famer. And, uh, you know, we can, we can tell our listeners I, you know, how over Jimmy was on these independent shows in Tennessee and North Carolina in the 90s and early 2000s. And really, unless you were there, it's hard to tell. And it's the same thing as the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, just mm. they, you know, absolutely were, you know, treated as royalty by these fans uh, in, in these towns in the in the South and in the Southeast uh, based off their long runs as, as top baby faces for Crockett. And and uh, and certainly, you know, Jimmy, uh, if if the whole point of wrestling is to get to get as much out of doing as little as possible, then oh, yeah. late 
90s, early 2000s, independent wrestler Jimmy Valiant was was uh, the king in that regard. Um, he knew, you know, he knew what he needed to do to get the crowd going, and he just did his shtick. He danced around. He kissed some of the crowd. Do a spot where he kisses the ref. Um, he, he 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 does the spot that was later co-opted by PWG of thumbs up butts. And apparently in PWG, it's cool and edgy. But when Valiant does it, it's, you know, outdated and gross. Uh, I don't get that. Um, But, you know, he he did his shtick and and, uh, he he was over. And, uh, you know, these shows in small towns in the Carolinas back in the late 90s were drawing three, four hundred people. And he's the only name on the card. And the promotion doesn't have any TV. and, and, And he clearly is the one that is getting these fans to come in and they're getting to relive um, you know, their, their younger days when they were probably a younger uh, wrestling fan watching him on TV and to get to see him live in person in your hometown, yeah. you know, that's, that's just the, that was the beauty of independent wrestling in those days. And, and in some regard, it still is uh, the way a lot of these indies bring in the, the, the glamour indie names or the former stars. It's, it's sort of the same thing. Uh, as that. And, and that is one of the beautiful things about independent wrestling, particularly in, in uh, not in the big cities, is the yeah. chance to see these larger than life, you know, and in many cases, television, legitimate television stars uh, in a small town. I, I've, I think I've talked about when I helped uh, bring AJ Styles to Piedmont, Alabama. Yeah. In uh, 2016. And uh, a week earlier, he had wrestled in front of, I think, 4,700 fans in Japan. And the town in Piedmont, the town of Piedmont, Alabama, its total population is less than that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so this is sort of 72 and, uh, looking at the feud scores, uh, we mentioned Tarzan Tyler being moved up the cards. He gets into a feud with Grizzly Smith and, and Grizzly always liked to, uh, particularly in the Louisiana towns, find a big heel to feud with. Uh, and and you mentioned that was sort of Tarzan's role. Uh, he's eventually going to, uh, start feuding with Watts and some of the other baby faces as well. We also have a feud between Dale Lewis and Ivan Putzky, and we don't have a lot of details but looking at um how the matches go from what we do have it appears that dale's younger quote-unquote brother gene lewis interferes uh the first time they have the match in many of the towns so (laughs) they build to a rematch where gene is barred from ringside or barred from the arena uh, Mm -hmm. ostensibly for ivan to you know uh get a, a clean win uh, and revenge. We also see uh, a feud between, as I mentioned, Hart and Parente against Duke Myers and Terry Garvin. And other than that, we don't really have any feuds involving some of the main adventures. We have Watts wrestling against Sweet Tan a few times, Dale Lewis a few times against Grizzly Smith. Hodge and Dr. X are the primary singles feud in the junior heavyweight division, but uh, they're not really a feud at this point in time. Um, uh, the weekly loop in September, 1972 Mondays, uh, was Shreveport and Tulsa. And that had been the Monday towns dating back to, I think, 60, uh, I think the early sixties when they first started running Shreveport in 61, um, Shreveport was Monday night and Shreveport and Tulsa were the two main Monday night towns. Sometimes they ran a, a third spot town, but sometimes it was just those two towns um, with pretty stacked lineups um, because the rest of the week they're running three shows a night. Tuesdays, they've got Alexandria, Louisiana, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Monroe, Louisiana. Wednesdays is Baton Rouge, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Jackson, Mississippi. 
Thursdays is Chalmette, Greenville, Mississippi, and Wichita Falls, Texas. Friday, their weekly towns are uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, and Oklahoma City, and possibly a third small spot town, but Oklahoma City was usually a pretty stacked show. Mm-hmm. On Saturdays, they ran Greenwood, Loranger, and Joplin, Missouri. And Joplin, for many years, actually shut down during the summer months. And this is something that a lot of the Missouri towns that uh, Heart of America, Central States ran, they did the same thing. They shut down during the summer. And and John, I, I don't know if you know this, um, but I believe the reason has to do with uh, climate and, and the cost of air conditioning in the 60s and huh. early 70s uh, and the size of these venues. Um, they are not, you know, the large venues. Um, so they're sort of your medium sized venues. I just I want to say that the size of the building and, and the cost of installing air conditioning in these buildings wasn't worth it for that two or three month period in the summer. Whereas the further south you go, you definitely have a need for air conditioning. And the further north you go, maybe you don't need air conditioning. Or in the case of the northeastern cities, the venues were larger and thus the air conditioning uh, was more feasible to install cost-wise. So this is an assumption, but it seems that that band, uh, uh, you know, uh, geographically that includes Missouri, did not have a lot of wrestling in the summer months. So Joplin um, usually shut down in uh, May or June and then restarted in September. And so these are three smaller towns on Saturdays. I believe they're doing TV on Saturday mornings. And if that's not the case, they're doing live TV in Oklahoma City on Saturday nights. So you have three sort of B towns and most of the uh, main eventers are probably working that TV and maybe one or two of them are working these house shows. And Sunday uh, is that town, and I will never forgive you for sticking that that, that Red Sox winning when Dwight <laughs> Evans hit a homer in my head. Because now every time I think about Homa, Louisiana, I think about the dadgum Boston Red Sox. And that damn John McAdam, who I need, hosts I a need podcast uh, that's part of the uh, Arcadian Vanguard podcast network that we are also a part of. So I can't bash Boston too much. It's all um, Adam's fault. Yeah. Uh, but uh, our blog at chartingtheterritories.com also looks at September 1980 and September 1976 uh, this month. And 1980 is interesting because we basically have the second leg of Junkyard Dogs feud with the Freebirds. And it starts with the Superdome on August 2nd, where Junkyard Dog comes back from being blinded to take on Michael Hayes in the dog collar steel cage match. And it's interesting because uh, how I do it on the blog, I actually break it down by city. Instead of just a strict chronological listing of the matches, I do each city separately. And you look at them chronologically and you can sort of see how the feud progresses. And in the weekly cities like uh, New Orleans or the New Orleans Market and Baton Rouge and Shreveport, you can see the progression. It starts with a singles match against Hayes, uh, and then it goes to a tag match, sometimes with Robley, and then it looks like Watts comes in as JYD's partner, and it actually ends with JYD and Terry Orndorff, the younger brother of Paul Orndorff, hmm. winning the uh, 
Mid-South Tag Team titles from the Freebirds. And by very early October, the Freebirds are gone. Uh, because as the song goes, they, they must be traveling on now. And the Lord knows they can't change. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, the Freebirds, uh, you know, really had a, a, a really strong run in 1980. They came in, you know, late 79. Um, and they were, you know, they were top guys um, for most of 1980. And, and it'll be interesting because next month on this podcast, we're actually going to look at the fourth quarter of 1980. So we're going to see with the Freebirds gone, who fills their shoes, who takes their places. And uh, we will have someone with the dreaded loaded boot gimmick oh. uh, that uh, we talked about earlier with Tarzan Tyler. Um, but also on the blog, we look at the first three months of 1962. And while I don't know this for a fact, um, looking at the roster, there's a higher than normal turnover in the roster. And, and in looking at the names that come in, one of them stands out as a possible new booker. And it's someone that has, uh, is one of the top tier bookers of all time. I don't know for a fact that he came in as the booker here, but given that there's a, a significant amount of turnover and looking at who leaves and who comes in, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that Louis Tillet, uh got the book mm. uh, for McGurk in early 1962. But Tillet comes in, Jan Madrid comes in and he's a tag team partner of Tolay for a lot of their run here. We also see Frankie Kane, who uh, the future great Mephisto, but at this point in time, he is still just plain old Frankie Kane. And another newcomer who um, would be a pretty important part of the junior heavyweight picture in the years to come. Oh, yeah. Here he is billed as the great Matsuda. He, of course, is hero Matsuda. Um uh, among his many accolades, he was the first uh, Japanese wrestler to win the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. He won it from Hodge. Um, but he comes in early on. And, and in researching Matsuda's career, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know. But as always, I'm going to defer to the expert. Uh, and that is oh. my co-host, John Boucher. Talk about... Matsuda's early, uh, the early part of his career in Japan and what led to him leaving Japan and coming uh, to eventually North America, but not directly there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of a cool story how he, he, he breaks into the business. Um, his first love, oddly enough, is, is baseball. He was a baseball pitcher uh, and he was, he was good enough where he had thought that playing professional baseball uh, in the U.S., ultimately was a, a realistic possibility and that would be his, his ticket out of Japan. Um, but at some point in his late teens, he sees uh, Ricky Dozen uh, wrestling on TV and decides that then and there that wrestling is what he wants to do. And that wrestling is how he is going to get to the United States. Um, he, he somehow finds out where Ricky Dozen lives and, and shows up with some of his friends uh, at his mansion where it's like his, his you know, his, his servant lets him in, and uh, introduces him to Ricky Tozan. Ricky Tozan takes a liking to the the young Matsuda and uh, invites him for dinner. So they're they're sitting down. As as the legend goes, you know, Hiro Matsuda's family was so poor that he had never eaten eaten meat before. And now he's chowing down on um, you know a, a steak and chicken with one of the biggest stars in the country. Not even sports stars, the cultural icon. Uh, the story is so cool. It almost has like a, a cinematic aspect to it. Uh, so he starts he starts training almost immediately, uh, and you know after after only a few months they have sort of a falling out. Uh, 
Um, and there's a few few different stories about what the specific falling out was. Uh, you know, you hear the stories about how guys weren't always, you know, quote unquote, smartened up until right before their their first match back in the back in the back in the days. And uh, Matsuda's first match was against a guy with serious amateur credentials. I think he was like a fifth degree black belt in, in something or other. Um, so they figure this guy is just going to take care of Matsuda. It won't be a problem. We don't even need to smarten this kid up. He's just he's going to be, he'll lose. No problem. And we'll figure it out on the back end. Uh, but Matsuda actually wins the match, like legitimately pins the guy in a shoot um, because he thought the match, you know, he thought it was a shoot. Thought wrestling was a shoot. Um, so he, he finishes the match. He's all proud of himself. But when Ricky Dozian sees him, he just smacks the crap out of him. And he's like, you know, and sort of smartens him up on the spot. It's like wrestling is about making your opponent look good, dummy. Um, and like, despite the the slapping incident, Ricky Dozan did did like Matsuda and saw a lot of potential in him, and both his his, his obvious skill and and his size. I think he was billed at like six one, maybe six two, which is an exceptional size for a, a Japanese wrestler at the time. Um, but Ricky Dozan wanted Hiro. Uh, to go into sumo wrestling first and then you know, establish himself as a sumo wrestler uh, and then come back to wrestling. The idea being that he would be recognized as a legitimate sports star once he came back to wrestling. Uh, Matsuda did not want to do that. So he was, he's looking to get to the U.S., doesn't see how that's going to help him in that regard. So he And, and I assume he doesn't tell Ricky Dozan he's using him to get to the U.S., correct? No, no. <laughs> yeah. And the other story is a lot less dramatic. And just involves Matsuda getting an arm injury of some some sort, which leads to their split. Um, but he has a, I think, a great uncle who owned a, a business in Peru, uh, importing importing slash exporting like a, the Art Vandalay of Peru, almost you could say. Uh, so he just, he decides to take a chance, head over there, uh, and take a day job with the family business while establishing himself as a wrestler in the area. Um, with you know, with all the training, the, the minimal but the, the good training he had in Japan, and just being you know a, a quick study, he quickly makes a name for himself uh, throughout South uh, Central America, and he starts making real progress when he hits Mexico. And it's important to keep in mind, like at, at this time, uh, early '60s, uh, American promoters, especially promoters in California, Texas, saw lots of box office money uh, in good wrestlers from Mexico. And when word gets around about Masuda, who, you know, wrestling in Mexico, plus being Japanese, and the promoters, when they hear this, they're, they're ready, to, ready to go to the bank with this guy. Uh, and it's 1961 where he has his first match on U.S. soil in East Texas. And I think it's, I think it's Morris Siegel that gives him the, the hero Matsuda name. Uh, before that, he was wrestling under his, his real name, Yashuhiro Kojima, or uh, Kojima Saito. Uh, Matsuda name goes way, way back. Interesting. There's actually a, I believe it's uh, Sorokichi Matsuda from the late 1800s that I think might have been the first ever Japanese wrestler to wrestle in the U.S. Um, and even more recently, though, there was a Matty Matsuda uh, who was very popular in Texas in the late 20s. So it seems more likely that Siegel has gotten the name from from that guy. Yeah, I, I seem to recall he was billed uh, as a, a relative of Matty Matsuda's uh, at, at uh. first, in, in perhaps in the McGurk territory, because that, that would have been... It's interesting, even, even further to complicating things, there's a, uh, there's a few newspaper results for another Matty Matsuda in 1939, 
working for Sam Avey in Missouri, who we talked about uh, last month. Um, but the original Matty Matsuda died in 1929 after supposedly after injuries sustained during a match. So it's sort of a mystery who the, the late the 1939 Matty Matsuda actually was. Uh, that'll take some digging to find out eventually. But yeah, this is his first run as Hiro Matsuda. And I think, yeah, once he gets to McGurk in February, he's booked as the great Matsuda. And like you said, it's here in early 62 where we, we start to see the genesis of you know, what was one of the, the greatest and longest rivalries of Matsuda's career, the, the, his rivalry with the pride of Perry, Oklahoma, Danny Hodge. Yeah, and I mean, that you know, pretty much goes through the mid-70s. Uh, so yeah. yeah, well over a decade on and off, and, and not just in the McGurk territory, but I believe oh, in Florida as Georgia, well. Japan, um, yeah. Many, yeah, Japan, of course. So yeah, one of the yeah. great feuds. The, the junior heavyweight title is so interesting because, uh, because McGurk had control of it for so many years, and it was a world title. And uh, there are times when Hodge takes it uh, you know, out of the area uh, on tour. Uh, there are times when he leaves for longer stints uh, in other territories, but for much of his, you know, career, he's both the, you know, world champion and he's a homesteader in this territory. That, that's something that you don't see a lot with the world titles. Uh, you know, yeah. even even when Dory or Briscoe have it, they're, they're never, uh, you know, Dory was never in Amarillo for three months, you know, straight, uh, you yeah. know, Briscoe, ne you know, was never in you know, Georgia or Florida for three months straight while world champion. They were, you know, there were times when they were at home for a few weeks, maybe even a little longer, but usually generally speaking, they're spending a week, uh, in different territories, almost nonstop yeah. for the year or so, uh, you know, the, at a, at a time. And so Hodge, uh, and the world junior heavyweight title is a, a unique case. And of course, after, uh, Hodge retires the, uh, and, and the title switches hands, it becomes more of a touring title between 76 and 79. And then when, uh, the McGurk, uh, when McGurk's tri-state wrestling territory crowns a new world champion, uh, in Ron Starr, who then, uh, we mentioned earlier about the lawsuit, I guess we'll spill the beans and saying it was Ron Starr who filed that lawsuit because he moved <laughs> to Missouri based on the promise of, of, of getting the title for a year. Sorry, moved to Oklahoma with the promise of having the title for a year. And after just a few months, they wanted him to drop it to Les Thornton. And so he no-showed um, a, a, a rematch. They had gone to a 60-minute time limit draw, and they were advertising a 90-minute you know, time limit for the rematch, and Starr just no-showed. So they end up uh, advertising Starr versus Thornton, knowing full well that Starr won't be there. And, and the advertisement explicitly says there will be a sub standing by in case one of the wrestlers is unable to appear. And the hmm. star does not appear. Tommy Gilbert takes his place. Thornton wins and wins the world junior heavyweight title and then uh, becomes a touring champion yep. uh, right then and there. Um, coming back for a few appearances, uh, but much in the role of a touring champion, just coming in for a week. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of the the main time periods that we hit each and every month on chartingtheterritories.com. And I do want to dip into our um, overflowing mailbag. And, and really, actually, this month, it's just uh, some questions I, I had on Twitter. I had more than one person just ask 
uh, in general about research advice. Uh, they wanted to do their own research on a territory or the town they grew up in or the town they live in. And so I just wanted to give uh, some tips because nowadays, uh, John, did you ever uh, go to your local library and, and sift through rolls and rolls of microfilm back in the I day? I did when I was younger. Okay. Back in the day, yeah. Just, you know, that's uh, how... That's how the whole wrestling historian uh, thing started, is with people going to their local library and, and looking through old papers on microfilm. And back then, there were no smartphones or UBS, you know, USB drives. We had to print things out uh, on a printer, and they usually charge you 10 cents a page. So if you want a year's worth of advertisements from your weekly town, that's $5 right there uh, in printer costs. Um, so it could add up. But nowadays, thanks to this wonderful uh, invention of Al Gore's known as the Internet, uh, there are other tools at your disposal. So the first thing I tell people, there are three subscription sites. They are newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com, and genealogybank.com. And genealogy is spelled, uh, in this case, it's G-E-N-E-A. L-O-G-Y bank.com. Even before you sign up to the sites, you can do a search to see uh, if they have your your newspaper or the newspaper you're interested in uh, in their records and what years they have it from. And then if you want to sign up, I think I think all of them or at least one or two of them offer, you know, free 30-day trials. So you can check it out. And the great thing about the online sites, as opposed to the old days of having to go to the library and doing it yourself on microfilm, is that they are searchable. They uh, have mm. very good text recognition software. So I always say the first thing you want to do is do a search for the word wrestling. Um, of course, you tend to find a lot of false positives, particularly in Iowa, um, because of amateur wrestling and collegiate wrestling. Um, so uh, the other, uh, another good term to search for is tag team. Because that is a phrase that is not going to show up any other time for any other reason uh, except in describing a wrestling match. Another good one is main event. Um, because, yes, sometimes you'll see for a boxing match or this and that, but that also has a good rate. And then as far as searching for wrestlers' names, you can always, um, based on what town you're looking at, if you know, you know, uh, a notable wrestler, um, you know, if you live in Florida and, you know, you're looking at the 70s, you might want to look up Eddie Graham or Buddy Colt or Tarzan Tyler. Um, uh, ideal, you, know, you can look for them by their full name, first name and last name. Uh, in a perfect world, sometimes if you just use their last name, sometimes you get more positives. And so the key is a last name that is uncommon, but not too uncommon that it would be misspelled. Um, and the most perfect one I can think of is Briscoe. Um, because, uh, you don't find a lot of people in the world. There are people in the world named Briscoe, but you don't find a lot of people who are newspaper worthy named Briscoe, whereas <laughs> someone like Mike Davis or Terry Taylor are very bad names to search for because there's a lot of people in the world with those names. We also talked about Jerry Brown earlier. He is another one, particularly in the, in the <sighs> mid seventies through mid eighties. You're <laughs> going to find a lot of false positives, not just from California, but from everywhere. There there was a wrestler who worked for McGurk in the 60s named Joe McCarthy, another bad one to search for. Um, so a name that is unique, but not too unique. For example, uh, you know, Ron McCulloch, whose name is spelled M-I-J-C-Z-O-L-Z-Y-K or something like that. <laughs> 
that's not a good one to search for. Um, <laughs> the other thing is to use some other wrestling related resources like cagematch.net or wrestlingdata.com uh, to find, uh, you know, if you're looking for a town and you're not sure if they had wrestling there or you're not sure how often they had it or what territory it was part of, if you can find anything on those sites, um, listing your town, you will get a better idea of what territory it was, perhaps how often they ran, and then you can use that to sort of hone your searching skills. Um, you know, it's it can be rewarding, and, and to me, uh, particularly when I find something that I didn't know, like I find a new town or a new show that, that no one else has listed, it's almost, you know, like uh, my baseball card collecting days when I got, you know, oh, the yeah, Mark yeah. McGuire rookie card, you get excited. Or nowadays, the Pokemon trend, you know, you got to find them all. So when you find one of those rare Pokemon cards, it, it can be very rewarding if you truly are interested in uh, looking up the history of wrestling. And, and if those don't work, if those, those three subscription sites don't have your local paper, your local library, of course, is the obvious next step. Um, in the current climate, you will probably want to check first. Um, as I've been looking around, some of them have reopened, some have not. Some have very strict limitations on what you can look at and what you can do and how long you can be there. And you might have to make an appointment. So always look, at your, look up your local library's uh, website yes. before trudging out there only to be turned away. Yeah. What's nice about the uh, newspaper.com, one of my favorite uh, search functions is, you know, you search for whatever, you know, field you, you can search by by year, uh, a year range, uh, in addition to whatever names or other keywords. But you can also, you know, right on the on the left side there on the search panel, they've got a little a little map and you could select which states you want to search or if you want to search just Texas, or if you want to search, you know, Texas and Arizona. Which is, I find that very useful in narrowing down yeah. if you're trying to get, it's very, very helpful. Particularly if it's a more common name, for example, a Danny Hodge. If you just want to look up Hodge for all of the U.S., you're going to find tons and tons of results. If you now narrow it down to a time frame, 1962, and a you know an, a geographic region, Oklahoma and Missouri, now you're you're going to get much more targeted results, and you're probably going to find a lot more. Of what you're looking for, which is, and you know, what we're looking for is advertisements for house shows. And sometimes there are little articles, uh, write ups before the show and oftentimes after the show where they list the results. And, and that's what researchers such as John and I and, and so many other uh, amazing people over the years are looking for. But I also got asked on Twitter um, what territory uh, I had the largest roster of full time wrestlers that I had come across. Oh, good question. Um, and so first, I must always say at this point in time, I have not done every territory for all times. <laughs> um, but in broad general terms, the territory with the most full-time wrestlers uh, in the uh, 60s, 70s, and early 80s was Mid-Atlantic. Uh, they're generally three shows a night. And Mid-Atlantic's formula, uh, almost all of their shows had five matches. Um, particularly in the weekly towns, they had five matches and up in, you know, up until, uh, 73, 74, uh, it was a tag team territory. So yeah. often uh, two of the five matches are tag team matches. So right there, that is 14 guys. Um, mm -hmm. if they're running three shows a night, yeah, they have upwards of, you know, 35 or more wrestlers on their crew at any given time. In the early seventies, when McGurk first went into Louisiana, um, He's got a pretty big roster, too, because he's generally running three shows a night. He's uh, around 30 
wrestlers as part of the roster. But I would say if we get out of the territorial era, 1990 WWF had, I believe, 8,192 wrestlers. Uh, That was the time where they had Shane Douglas and Alex Perez and Black Bart, uh, not even on TV, but just working opening matches on house shows for no reason other than they didn't want the territories to have those guys. Oh, a follow-up question to that question, Uh, not to put you on the spot. Who would you use off the top of your head, uh, smallest full-time roster? I knew you were going to ask that, so I was thinking Uh, as you were asking, uh, if I have to guess, Vancouver. Vancouver. Uh, they're a they're a one town a night territory for their their existence. But and the other thing I think about the term full time roster is a bit of a technicality because since we don't have complete yeah. data for most of these territories, there are guys who aren't working. You know, if we have you know shows for several nights a week, we we have guys that are only a, a couple of nights a week, and if it's always possible these territories are running tiny little spot shows in the middle of nowhere that these guys are on. Um, the law of large numbers says if that were true, we'd know it. Um, so, but there, there are, and, and I know with the WWWF, they have a lot of part-timers at the bottom of the cards and in, in some ways, the top of the cards too. the Northeastern territories, split and shared a lot of the main event talent. Think of Bobo Brazil, George Steele. They're working big cities uh, for McMahon, but they're also working big cities for The Sheik. They're working Toronto. Uh, If Pedro Martinez is running, they're working big shows for him. So a lot of times they're not full-time wrestlers in one territory. And with the WWWF, their preliminary wrestlers are often geographically based. There is a separate crew that works the Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania towns, a separate crew that works New England, and a separate crew that works, you know, New York and North Jersey. So they have a ton of wrestlers, but they don't have as many quote unquote full-time pro wrestlers as, as mid Atlantic. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny looking at those WWF results from those days because you'll you'll see you'll see these guys on like you said, uh, you know, Baltimore shows, Philly shows, uh, and then Massachusetts shows, and you'll just you, you'll recognize the guy from you know from like the the, the Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, it's a way of keeping those are the guys are on TV. And those yeah, are it's a way of keeping <laughs> expenses down because you don't have to yeah. give them a trans payoff. Uh, yeah. Or at least you don't have to give them as much of a trans payoff. You're, you're giving three separate guys smaller payoffs as opposed to giving one guy three larger payoffs. Uh, so that's sort of the way they did it. And they also just had such a large swath of land uh, that wasn't easily navigable. Of course, so did McGurk, but that didn't stop him from uh, him and Watts from running their wrestlers ragged, as opposed to a territory like Florida, which is, I mean, I think the furthest town is four and a half. If you live in Tampa, the furthest town is four and a half hours. Yeah. You wonder why Tarzan Tyler spent seven years there. Yeah. Or you know, why, you know, why so many wrestlers wanted to work down there. Yeah. Good, good work if you can get it. But yeah, so th- that's the mailbag. And of course, uh, we're always happy to answer your questions on the air, on the podcast, over the interwebs, as the kids say. So if you do have any questions uh, for either something we talked about on the podcast or something about our crazy statistics that I invented from literally thin air, but are interesting and relevant, um, you can always let us know. And uh, you can find all of our 
data and charts and stats at chartingtheterritories.com. And whimsical historical musings are tweeted out regularly by both of us. Um, Every morning I I tweet out some on this day where I look at generally two cards from the McGurk and and McGurk associated territories over the years. Sometimes it's, you know, from 1984. Sometimes it's from 1959. Sometimes it's from 72. So I I mix it up and and it's pretty neat to look at all the incredible names that pass through the territory. But I'm at Al Gets Wrestling. And John, your Twitter? I am at John underscore Boucher. That's J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. All right. Hey, you got it right. Congratulations. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, and also, as we mentioned earlier, check out payhip.com slash charting the territories yeah. to download the almanac covering Leroy McGurk's tri-state wrestling territory from September 79 to March 1982. There will be another special project coming in October that's going to look at uh, George and Gil Culkin's Mississippi territory. Uh, that they ran for two years uh, from October 1977 through August 1979. And I think a lot of people know a few guys that got their start in that territory. But if you dig deeper into the roster, there's some fascinating names uh, and, and a lot of names that surprised me that worked for this territory. I was also surprised to find out you know, they a they ran a full time territory for two years, but many times they're running two shows a night. Uh, and also on the podcast next month, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1980 in Mid South Wrestling. And I know there's a lot of people that that are always curious about who the Booker is at various times. And I know the early days of Mid South Wrestling, obviously Watts did a lot of the booking, but also Ernie Ladd and Buck Robley were bookers at various times. But in looking at the roster and and uh, the lineups for the fourth quarter of 1980, John, I'm pretty sure that Bill Watts uh, was taking booking advice from old Jim Croce lyrics. Oh, interesting. Uh, so oh, we better will... him than uh, Harry Chapin Carpenter or Harry, Harry Chapin. rather. Yeah. Harry, yeah. Harry, Harry Chapin songs were very depressing. Uh, for sure. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, so we'll, we will talk about that and we will talk, take a look at who junkyard dogs, uh, new, new foil slash foils are after the Freebirds uh, must be traveling on now. Uh, so yeah, yeah that'll be an interesting look at the territory in transition. And to be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories are available, you can subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. So all all those sites to remember, you have to remember chartingtheterritories.com. You have to remember payhip.com slash chartingtheterritories and chartingthepodcast.com. So it's it's a lot of work keeping up with John and I because we are all over the place, but we are glad you listened. And as always, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. John, this was great uh, talking to you about some of the uh, interesting names and faces in the territory in 1972 and other times as well. And uh, take care, and we will do this again in October. See you in October.